Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. We're in Psalm uh, 51 this morning, book two, which is Psalm 42 to 72. And uh, if you happen to be our guest, or maybe you've missed a few Sundays, what we're doing is finding encouragement this summer in the book of Psalms. So I want, to, I want to begin this morning by asking you this question. Have you ever sinned in a grievous way so that your heart and your life are crippled with guilt and shame over what you've done? Depending on the sensitivity of your conscience that Keith was talking about a few weeks ago, it may be, it may be worse for some and not as bad for others if you've hardened your conscience you know, if you've maybe even seared your conscience. Um, but, but have you ever had that happen where you've sinned and you sinned pretty grievously and, and you feel the weight of that shame and that guilt? I remember when I was young, probably 17 years old, I, or 18 years old, I bought an old boat that was a piece of junk and the motor on it was a piece of junk. And um, I don't even know if it had a motor, but my grandfather gave me a motor. It was a 45 Johnson and I took my grandfather's motor, which wasn't really powerful enough to push my boat, and I sold his motor, and I bought a 65 horsepower something else. And, um, and I got ripped off, but I never asked my grandfather if I could sell his motor. I just sold it. And I, you know, reasoned, maybe it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. He might say no. I sold his motor, and you know how it always is, as soon as I did that, my granddaddy started asking me about the motor that he never ever mentioned before. Hey, Jimmy, where's that motor I lent you? Oh, it's out in, out in Lynchburg or out, uh, out near Ferrum, granddaddy. And he would ask me about it every time. And I'm telling you, it might seem like a simple thing, but the guilt and the shame that I felt, I still remember it. It was, it was, it was, it was really heavy on me. And it, nothing changed, nothing changed until I confessed to my grandfather what I had done. And when I finally did confess to my grandfather and he forgave me, you know, something happened there. So maybe today you find yourself in a spot where you are weighted down with guilt and with shame. It's something that you've hidden from other folks and you've maybe even attempted to uh, cover up, but you still feel the weight and the guilt of that, of that event, the shame of your brokenness. Psalm 51 begins with a parable. Just listen to the parable. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, a very, had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her. She grew up with him with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was a pet, in other words. She was like a daughter to him. Wow, even more. Now a traveler came to, the, to a rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now Nathan the prophet is the one who shares that parable, and he shares it with King David. And when he does, King David is outraged by the injustice of it all. But none of that compares to the injustice that David had committed. 
David had sent his armies out to war and not gone with them, which is something kings did not do. And while he was home by himself, he was up on the roof of his house looking over into the the roofs that were evidently below him. And he saw uh, the wife of one of his friends, Uriah. She was bathing. And he sent for her and he committed adultery with her and she became pregnant. I read one commentator who said that David would have been number one on the Me Too movement hit list of our day. And, uh, and I think they were right. I, I've often thought about this myself. Um, we have no way of knowing whether Bathsheba was a consenting partner, but I don't think she was. I think she was a victim of David's power and position. And I think she felt like she had no, no response. She had no ability to say no to David. I, I've often thought that. David called Uriah home from battle to cover up his sin because she's pregnant. And he calls Uriah home and he, his goal is to send Uriah home to his wife and so that Uriah would think the baby is his. But Uriah has such a connection to his brothers at arms out in the field that they are not, he's not willing to go home and, and stay with his wife because of his commitment to his brothers at arms. And so he doesn't go home. So David sends him back with a letter. And the letter, you know, Uriah never reads it, but the letter is to the commander of David's armies. And it basically says this, put Uriah up at the front. And when he's up there in the worst part of the battle, pull everybody back so that he'll be killed. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah is, is killed. And, uh, and so David has hidden his sin with Bathsheba and he's hidden this sin from others. And it appears that outwardly he's not affected by it, but he is affected by it. He's affected internally by it, but God saw it. He might've hidden it from everyone else, but God saw it. And I think that's important. We might hide our sin, but God always sees our sin. Almost a year later, God sends Nathan with this parable to confront David. And, and Nathan's words, they just cut like a razor to David's heart when he says, you're the man in this parable. You're the guy I'm talking about. And David sees it. And I imagine the guilt and the shame that he's somehow managed to hide in the back. They just, it just all comes erupting up in his heart. And he cries, I have sinned against God. And when he does, the Bible says that, that David, God says to David, you won't die, uh, but his son with Bathsheba will die. What do you do when you've done something wrong, but you don't really know how to move forward? You, you know, you've done something wrong. You can't undo what you've done. By the way, that's a great principle for us to grab hold of. What's in the past is in the past, and you cannot change it. So you've done something wrong, And you can't change it, but you really can't live with it either. It's just killing you. It's eating you alive on the inside. The weight of it is terrible, and you feel helpless and defeated and lost. What do you do? Well, here's the answer. You repent. You repent. We find the word repent often in the context of us messing up, of us failing others or failing God. And the word actually, we probably all know this because we've said it over the years, but the word repent actually means to change one's mind. And I'm going to really talk about that. I want you to listen towards when I get to the end of this talk. I know it's, it's easy to fade out, but I'd really like you to hear at the end, right? But it's to change one's mind. But repentance has never been just an intellectual exercise. It's more than just, it's more than just changing our mind. Or there's specific things that we change our mind about. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer 
of repentance. And so what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to work through his psalm because I think, I think this psalm of repentance actually gives us some keys to what repentance looks like in all of our lives as well. And something that we, can, we should strive to emulate, things that, we, that can maybe set you free even today if indeed you are weighted down with guilt and shame because of something in your past. So what does repentance look like and what does it do? Let's look at David's prayer. I think I have six things that I want us to note or to hang our thoughts on. So, so here, let's dive in. The first one is this. Repentance is an appeal to God for forgiveness. It's an appeal to God. When we've got this, this guilt and this shame on us and it's heavy on us, repentance is an appeal to God. It's changing our mind and turning back to God and asking God to forgive us and asking God to cleanse us. If you look at the text, it begins like this. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Now, David remembers two things about God. Note them in the text with me. The first one is God's faithful in love. And secondly, that God is abundant in compassion. You see that in the text, right? We find those thoughts all throughout God's book. Right? So here's an example. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We've put this to a song. Uh, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or here's Psalm 103 verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And here's an anecdotal observation by the author of Kings, but the Lord, this is 2 Kings 13, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. So based on, based on the compassion of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God, repentance is us turning back to God in our minds and asking God, please cleanse us from our sin. Please forgive us, you know, for what we've done. If we go back to Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and they're weighted down with guilt and shame. They had never sinned. They hadn't experienced guilt. They hadn't experienced shame. But now both of them are on them because of the brokenness of their rebellion. So what do they do? They hide. They go and hide from God because the Bible says in the cool of the evening, God would come and walk with them. What that looked like, how he did that, I mean, I could speculate. But they were expecting God to come looking for them. And the Bible tells us that he went and hid. They hid from him. They didn't want him to find them because they felt so bad. Our sin does that to us, even today. It leads us to hide from God. It leads us to run away from God, not toward him. I watched a friend of mine who sinned against the Lord. And uh, to get away from his guilt and his shame, because he wasn't willing to repent, as we're going to talk about it throughout this song, he wasn't willing to repent. He had to do something to get away from God. So what he did is he worked to change his mind. He, cha- he changed his mind, but in the other way. He changed his mind to reject even the existence of God. Jesus and to doubt even the existence of God. Repentance begins, listen, repentance is about us changing our mind and saying, God, I'm not going to run from you anymore because that's what we tend to do in our guilt and shame, run from the Lord. I'm going to now run to you. I'm going to come back to you and I am going to seek your forgiveness. And that's what David does. 
But repentance isn't just remembering the character of God and then turning back towards him. Number two, repentance is acknowledging and owning our sin. So look at verse three. For I am conscious, David says, of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Repentance is when I'm willing to stop ignoring my sin, justifying my sin, and acknowledge my sin and openly confess it. It's wrong. What I've been doing is against you, Lord. It's wrong, rather than making excuses for it. David said he is conscious of, is conscious, conscious of his rebellion. Here's what David is saying. David is saying, man, I recognize it. This isn't a mistake. This isn't, I didn't just trip up here. I just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have the law here. All I have is the law in my heart and I missed it somehow. No, he's saying this was clear rebellion on my part. This was me doing what I absolutely knew was wrong. I should never have done. I committed adultery. I committed murder. I was wrong. And he said his sin is always before him. So you know what that tells me? He hid his sin with Bathsheba by killing Uriah. He hid his sin of killing Uriah by really only involving Joab, I guess. I think it was Joab or Abnon or uh, I can't remember, Joab. I'll say Joab. And he hid his sin, but his sin never left him. It's consuming him. He'll say in just a minute, the bones within me, you've crushed them. He is feeling the weight of this sin. I wonder, are you feeling the weight of any sin that you need to deal with today? That's the purpose of this psalm, I believe. It's why God has recorded it for us. In his inner man, David says, I'm being crushed. And then it's interesting, isn't it? Look at your text. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No matter what David said there, it's not, it's not that David did not sin against Bathsheba. It's not that David did not sin against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba grievously. He sinned against Uriah grievously. But his point, I think, is at the end of the day, ultimately, he said, God, I sinned against you because my acts were rebellious. My acts weren't stumbling. I chose to sin against you. The God who made me king, the God who gave me this position, the God who rescued me from Saul time and time again. I did this against you. Against you have I sinned, David said. And, you know, someone said this morning, we were talking about this in the prayer time, and someone said it almost seems like David is not repentant towards Bathsheba and and Uriah. And it it, it does seem we don't see a lot of that expressed towards them. But I think there's a sense in which David, and again, I'm not excusing him. I, I believe he needed to, he couldn't confess to Uriah, but he needed to have confessed to Bathsheba. Maybe he did. We don't know. But David is feeling the weight that my sin is against God. And listen, everyone, ultimately that is where our sin is. And when we sin grievously, I mean, we tend to categorize sin, but when we sin grievously, we are sinning against God. Now, we're hurting people, but ultimately the injury in our sin is against God, who loved us. I mean, this is, just, this is true for us, just like I was David. So when, when, when I sin, I'm sinning against God who loved me, the God who's rescued me from 
from death that's coming. The God who has heals my broken relationship with me and brought me back into relationship with him. I'm sinning against him. And repentance is confessing to God. It is stopping making excuses and it is owning my sin. God, I'm sinning against you. Not against anyone. I'm sinning against you. So David says in the text, he says, look, you are right, God, when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge me. Your judgment is correct. I am an adulterer. I am a murderer, David says. You are right. And he's agreeing with God. Repentance always involves confession of sin. Confession of our sin to God, not hiding it from God anymore. But I'm going to go beyond what David says in this psalm. And I am going to say, and I I believe I have the spirit, and I believe the rest of the word of God would back me up on this. Our repentance must must include confession of our sin to people. When, When our sin is known to them, and, 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 and known by them. Now, I ascribe to this thought, and you can disagree with me. This is, this is just Jimmy's thought, okay? But I ascribe to the thought that confession to people ought to be as public as my sin, but not necessarily always. So to, to track with me, if my sin is private in my heart, then I need to confess to God. If my sin is against a person, and that person knows my sin, I am under obligation to confess my sin to them. Um, James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. I, I, I think he's talking about this thing, that when I've sinned against you, if I sin against Dale, and Dale knows I've sinned against her, I was gossiping and I said something about Gail, and it come, about Dale, and it comes back, and Dale knows I've said this or whatever, and I'm repentant. I mean, it's not just God that I need to seek forgiveness from, it's going to be Dale or George, or Janet, or whoever I sin against. I need to seek their forgiveness. Um, So my sin needs to be as public as my confession. So if my sin is public, and all of us know my sin, or your sin, your confession needs to be public if everyone knows it. Having said all that, I believe that having someone physical to confess even my private sin to is helpful. You know the James passage, confess your sins to one another? I just told you that I think that means that when I've sinned against you, I need to confess to you, right? Did y'all follow that? But it could be that James means, yeah, confess your sins to someone, you know, so that you may be healed. Find someone to share your private sins with and confess them. I, I think our Catholic friends maybe have something with the confessional, you know, where you're allowed to go and confess your sins to someone. In 1980, Alan Bridge began posting flyers around New York City, and he called it an apology line, and he described it as a, he made a telephone uh, number, and he posted, I mean, he handed out all these things, and he said, you could call the apology line. It's an anonymous telephone line where strangers could come clean about their wrongdoings, ranging from infidelity to murder. And uh, that was the technology at the time. They ended up having 15 answering machines to that line. And, uh, and, and that, that, thing was going, that thing went on for 15 years where people would call the apology line to basically confess anonymously their, their sins outwardly. Uh, I have another story here. Because of time, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to share the, the, 
the outline of it. 2006, again in New York, two women did something similar. They stood on the street corner and they had a clipboard where you could go and write your sins down uh, anonymously. And, uh, and then they would take and post these anonymous statements on a storefront window. And, and it just became an incredible thing. So many people writing down their sins on those pieces of paper. Now, I'm not sharing those two stories because I'm, I'm necessarily praising that. I'm sharing them because I'm telling you, there's something in us that needs to confess. And sometimes even our private sins, we need to find a brother or a sister and confess our sins uh, to them. And there's sometimes, listen, there's sometimes when the Spirit of God's going to lead you to confess your sins, maybe even publicly in front of everyone. I mean, he, the weight of the Spirit is saying, confess your sins before the body. And you know what? Just about all revival movements happen when that happens. I'm not talking about when you get up in the flesh and share your, your sins for some. I'm talking about when the Spirit of God is prompting and weighting you down and, and He's telling you, confess your sins. And people get up and in front of the body confess their sins. All too often, revival breaks out. Look at verse 5. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We read that this morning in the prayer t- group and the first question afterwards. What does verse 5 mean? And I said, well, I'll tell you this morning. I'm going to tell you now. Um, this is a hard statement to understand what it means. Some people think it means that David is, is hearkening back to uh, Adam's sin. He's saying, you know, I was born guilty of Adam's sin. And so I'm confessing that I was born a sinner. And in that moment, I, I just had a proclivity towards Sin, And he could be saying that. Many, many people believe that, that that's what David's alluding back to, back to Adam. And he's saying, I'm guilty of Adam's sin, so I'm a sinner. Uh, there is another way of looking at this that people uh, point to. There's a Jewish legend. And again, I'm not going to go into many details. This is very interesting. If you want to Google it, I'd really encourage it. It'd be a great thing to do this, this, uh, this week or look up in the commentaries. But... Um, there's a Jewish legend that David's mother is not the mother of David's brothers. In other words, that David's mother was a second wife to Jesse and that David had actually been born to Jesse and this other woman in an out of wedlock relationship. And uh, so again, let me just say that that theory, uh, which, is, which is in Jewish history, um, it would explain a lot of things. For instance, here's David writing in Psalm Uh, 69, he says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. David was left uh, to 10 flocks when the prophet Samuel came and he said, I want all of your sons to be here. They don't even bring David. They leave him out in the fields. Why, Why don't they bring David? So there are some things that, you know, maybe point to the validity of that legend. But either way, what is David saying? Here's what I think David is saying, regardless of how you interpret what he means by that in sin his mother conceived him. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying that from the very beginning of my life, I have fought against sin. I mean, I've struggled with sin from the very beginning, whatever the reason. It's just been a part of my life. And I thought to myself, man, this is, this is true for all of us, isn't it? 
All of us, from, since we were little, since we, since we began to know right and wrong, for whatever reason, when we struggle to submit ourselves to God's will. We struggle against sin. I think that's what David is saying. I've been struggling against sin my whole life. Verse six, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. I think David's saying, yes, Lord, I've struggled against sin, but the thing that you desired of me that I did not give is integrity. And integrity is living what you claim to believe. David would have known adultery and murder are wrong and evil, and he didn't live them out. And he's not being a man of integrity, and here he's confessing it. God, you desired integrity. I've struggled with it my whole life. God, I'm not, I'm not a man of integrity. I have not lived out what I believed and knew to be true. Number three, repentance is an appeal for cleansing. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my evil. Now, hyssop is mentioned in the Old Testament six times. And in, in all of these times, it's mentioned in the context of ceremonially being cleansed of sin. The first one is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. Hyssop is said when, when the death angel, they've come out of Egypt, and, or no, excuse me, they're in Egypt, it's the 10th plague, and the death angel's coming through. God says, get hyssop. Dip hyssop in the blood of your sacrificial lamb and use that branch with its leaves to paint the blood on the doorpost of your house. And that's the first use of it, right? It was to cleanse the house so that the death angel would pass over. In, in Leviticus 14, 4 and verse 52, if you're a leper and you've been healed, you need to take the, the, the hyssop, dip it in the blood of the sacrificial lamb and cleanse your house with it. So in these contexts, it's about being cleansed. In the Old Testament, it's about being cleansed by God, being forgiven by God. And, and so here's what David is saying. Lord, if you will... If you will clean me, if you'll take the blood of a sacrifice and clean me, God, I will be cleansed. Here's a side note. I just, I just had to throw this in there. Did you know that it was, I didn't know this, or if I knew it, I forgot it. Did you know that hyssop is what, the, the, was the stick that they used to put the sponge on to give Jesus the sour wine on the cross? It was hyssop. Why not just a stick? Why does it say hyssop? I don't know. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Or maybe God is pointing us to the cleansing sacrifice that is Jesus. Just a thought. But regardless, David is saying, wash me, wash me, Lord, and I'll be clean. By the way, side note here, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were picturing for us Jesus. You probably all know this, but maybe you don't. So maybe this will be new to you. But this is so, this is so important. The Old Testament sacrifices, the reason why God instituted them in that old covenant was to point us to the new covenant. It was to point us to what God knew was coming, that Jesus, just like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, Old Testament their blood was to be applied with hyssop to the doorpost and, and to the leper. They, they were picturing the fact that Jesus' blood would be shed for us and it would cleanse us. And here's, here's one neat thing. In the Old Testament, the sacrificed blood just covered our sin. In the New Testament, it washes it away uh, for us. And, and so Jesus, in a sense, the reason why David could be forgiven by God was because Jesus would pay for his sin. 
many centuries later. And by the way, number two, the blood of the lamb painted by the hyssop piece of branch on the doorpost. I mean, that is a pre-picturing of what God was going to do for you and me. So at the judgment bar of God one day, and again, this is metaphorical, but if the blood of Jesus has been painted on the doorpost of our lives, then then the death angel, if you would, the, the penalty of death will be passed over and we shall be given eternal life in the Lord. David says, God, wash me. Wash me white as snow. Did you know that snow's in in the Middle East, it snows in Israel. I did not know that. I was surprised, but it snows in Israel. So when God says, come let us, in, in, in Isaiah, come let us reason together, says the Lord. And though our sins be as scarlet, this will be white as snow. They would have known the whiteness of snow. And David says, Lord, I long to be cleansed by you. I long to have you cleanse me. Cleanse me so that the weight of my guilt and shame would be lifted. And, and this is his prayer, restore me. Cleanse me. This past week, I um, was in a prayer meeting on Wednesday with a pastor friend, and he was praying for he was praying for a fellow pastor friend. And this fellow this fellow pastor friend is in jail because he was looking on things online that involved children that he shouldn't have looked at, and he was arrested for it. And this pastor was praying for him, and this pastor began to weep for his friend. Because he said he's, you know, he's a brother, but he's committed this sin that, that all of us abhor. I mean, even one of the things that this pastor said, Lord, even our lost culture abhors this, right? They haven't embraced this yet. Um, but he's praying for it. And, 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 I, and I'm wondering, God, can you cleanse? Can you restore? Can, can you clean? That? Can you clean that? I mean, we, we think God can clean all of our sins, but if we go down to that extreme over there, can God really cleanse somebody from that? And then it gets worse. On Friday night, I get a, I get a, a text from a, a friend I went to college with and, um, and somebody who mentored me, somebody who was... I mean, I tell you, I was thinking about this. I owe as much to this brother as I do to my father. I think in, in a spiritual way, this man mentored me. And, and I got a text saying he's been arrested and he's actually been sentenced. And he was sentenced by, for, for sexual battery against someone younger than 13. I mean, same kind of thing as I'm sharing with you from this pastor. But then I, as, I, as I read, it was his own daughter. So let me ask you, can God cleanse that? Do we really believe that God can cleanse that? I mean, I, I do believe that God can cleanse that, but it shakes you a little bit. Shakes you a little bit. And it's so funny how we do. And we draw an imaginary line somewhere. And, and, you know, our sins, most of our sins are on this side of that line. And sometimes we'll go on that side of that line. And we know we're on that side of the line. But there's still another line over here that's just, no way. No way can God cleanse that. I want to say to you on the authority of God's truth that, He can cleanse us from anything. 
including, including that. Including that. Number four, repentance. So in your, in your notes, if you're doing the fill in the blanks, I, I had written longs for transformation, but I changed it this morning as I was going through this. Repentance longs to be restored. Longs to be restored. Here's what David says, verse 10. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then I'll teach the rebellious your ways. The sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and my tongue will still sing your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David doesn't just want to be cleansed. He wants to be restored. He wants to be restored. He wants to be, I want to suggest he wants to be transformed because he says here in the text, he says, give me a steadfast and willing heart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand But how many of us as followers of Jesus have said, God, I'm not going back there again. I'm not doing that again. And we fall right back into it at some point in the future. I don't don't think that David's necessarily thinking he's going to fall back into murder or fall back into adultery. But, But he's basically saying, God, give me a steadfast and willing heart to submit to you and to not fall and not fail anymore and not... And, and not disappoint your desire for me, your plan for me, your, your goals for me. I, I, I want to be restored. And he wants to be transformed, but he wants to be restored. Notice this. He says, Lord, forgive me and don't banish me from your presence. He says, forgive me and don't take your spirit from me. In other words, he recognizes that sometimes there's ramifications for our sin. Listen, everyone, you can make choices, but you can't make You can't choose the consequences of your choices, right? You can make a choice, but you cannot choose the consequences of your choices. Sometimes those consequences are beyond your control and they just come. And and, and those consequences, I think he's saying, Lord, please, the consequence, don't banish me. Forgive me and don't banish me. Forgive me and don't take your spirit from me. And I, I won't, you know, it's different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. I, I mean, the Holy Spirit's obviously with David. He sensed his presence. And he's saying, Lord, please, please don't take your presence from me. And then he's pray, he says this, Lord, restore me. Restore my joy. Restore my teaching. Restore my singing. Restore my praise. David's sin had robbed him of all of those things. They're not in his life anymore. And he's saying, God, I want you to restore my joy. Restore my song. Restore my praise. And I'm telling you, when we sin and we go as unrepentant and we go unconfessing it and we go with it just, I mean, and it's, it's robbing you because the shame and the guilt is laying on your shoulders. I tell you, it robs your willingness to talk about Jesus. Repentance is when we change our mind and we want to be restored. We want to feel the wind of God's presence blowing in our life once again. Number five, repentance is a heart matter. It's a heart matter. Look at verse 16. You do not want a sacrifice, David says to God, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and a humble heart, God. 
Now, I said at the beginning that repentance means changing one's mind, right? But I said it's not just a mind matter. Here David tells us it is a heart matter as well as a mind matter. The mind and the heart are melded together here. It's not one without the other, but one is affected by the other. If it's just a matter of the mind, David says, I could offer a sacrifice and that'd be good enough. But it's not that. You don't want just a sacrifice. You want my heart. And what pleases you is a broken and a contrite heart. Now, a contrite heart is one that feels the weight of the wrong it's committed. Okay? I think being contrite is the work of the conscience aided by the Holy Spirit. A broken spirit is willing to bow in submission to another, in this case, to God. And so a broken and a contrite person is a person who grieves their wrong, grieves the weight of their wrong, and and longs to be restored in submission to God. So a broken and contrite heart, you know, I'm not going to do this because I see my time's running thin. Um, But there's the hard heart in the Bible, the perverse heart, the proud heart, wicked heart, defiant, sinful, deceitful, adulterous, hard and impenitent heart, a veiled heart, an evil and unbelieving heart. I mean, those are contrasts to the kind of heart that God wants from us, a broken and a contrite heart. So the question has to be, and hopefully if you're tracking with me, I always hope you're tracking with me, but how do you develop a broken and a contrite heart? Isn't that the question? If I want a broken and a contrite heart, how do I get that? Because I can't just fabricate it, can I? Can you, can you fabricate a broken and contrite heart? I don't think so. At least not in the sense of just snapping your fingers, right? So I'm going to go into the weeds here a little bit, but, but try, to, try to follow me through this because I think I've got something really kind of neat to share with you. Um, metanoia, repentance, is a change of the mind. It's a change of the mind. I think the broken and contrite heart comes because we're willing to change our mind. Now let me see if I can explain. Your brain is this organ up here between your ears, and your, your brain actually produces your mind. You know, and it's just, if you'll just give me that, the, mind, the brain is an interface between your immortal soul and, and your mind, or your, your, your brain is producing your mind, but your brain is complex, super complex. And it produces patterns in your life to, to help your mind. Your mind being your thinking, you know, you're, you're the, thing, the thoughts that you have about who you are, etc. That's your mind. Your brain is the organ. So your brain produces complex things and patterns to help your mind. Okay? It's why we can do so much without thinking, without the mind actually being involved. I, my, my favorite illustration of this is you'll drive down the road and you've been driving for an hour and all of a sudden you'll realize man, I ain't seen nothing for an hour, right? Because you haven't been consciously driving. You've been subconsciously driving because your brain has created these patterns that help you do that. So it's your mind. So that you can drive without thinking and your mind can be involved in, in other things. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Unfortunately, your brain can construct patterns that are wrong and sinful. In the same way that your, your brain can create these patterns that let you, in fact, your brain is trying to do this. I, I think they say like, I think neurologists 
Um, brain folks are saying that we're probably using only 5% of our conscious brain. The rest of it is these, these subconscious patterns that have been developed in our life to help us just move through life without having to consciously be thinking about everything. And uh, so unfortunately, we develop these patterns in our brain that are wrong and sinful. And when we're not thinking, we just follow those patterns that our brain, our material organ brain has constructed for us. And that's why it's so easy to fall back in to whatever sin is. In fact, when we're falling into these bad things that are bad for us and bad for others, we call them, what do we call them? If you're, if you're tracking with me, we call them what? Patterns, we call them addictions when they're really bad, right? We're addicted because we've got these certain patterns in our life that we fall into. But, but here, is, here is something neat. I mean, uh, I mean this is so exciting. So, so stay with me. I know I'm in the weeds a little bit, but stay with me. This is so exciting. Your brain builds these, these physical connections, neurons, that, that make patterns in your life. But here's the neat thing. Did you know that your mind can change your brain. It's not just that your brain builds patterns to help your mind. When you change your thinking, your thinking actually deals with those neurological paths and begins to to destroy them when you think differently. Now, folks, that, that is not coming from Christians. That's coming from neuroscientists. And, and this neuroplasticity that talks about how they've discovered now, they, they used to think this wasn't possible, but your mind actually changes the structure of your brain when you think differently, when you choose to think different things. It begins to destroy these patterns. And, and so as it does that, it breaks down these paths. It breaks down these paths into wrong behavior and wrong thinking. So let's go back to what the Bible says. The Bible says, renew your mind. Renew your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And I think in, in so many simple ways, God is saying, let your mind Renew your brain. Let your mind change the patterns. Think on these things, things that are lovely, things that are, I can't remember how the verse goes, but you know I'm talking about in Philippians, right? Think on these things. Why does God say think on these things? Because when we think on those things, we begin to destroy those those wrong pathways that are built in our organic brain. And then our brain begins to help us in our mind walk in the way we ought to walk. So how does this, what does that do with a broken and a contrite heart? Well, here's what I've been practicing this week, and I really want to encourage you to do it. I I hope I can stick with it. I'm really trying to tear down things in my own brain and build up new things, but I'm waking up in the morning, and even before I get out of bed, I'm saying, God, today, I want a broken, I want to be a broken person. I want to walk in submission to you today. God, I want to be a contrite person. I want to, I want to, uh, feel the weight of my sin. I want to feel the weight of walking in faithfulness to you today. And I I think this is how we develop a broken and contrite heart. We begin to build that with our minds so that our brains will help us. We tear down the wrong structures of the hard heart and impenitent heart and all those hearts we don't want. And we begin to say to our brains, this is what I want. This is who I am. And start thinking that way. So 
We're out of the weeds again. Hope you followed that. I tell you what, to me, I feel like it's been life transforming. And in my, in my email tomorrow, I'll link some things for you to listen to if you care to listen to them. And number six, finally, and I'm finished. We've got nine minutes. Repentance is bigger than a just me matter. In verse 18, David says this, In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, if you're like everyone else, and you get to verse 18 and 19, they seem to not exactly fit, don't they? They seem to not really go with the flow of what David's been saying. That's what commentators have said. And so many folks... For those of you this morning in Sunday school class, in my Sunday school class, we're talking about higher criticism. This is where higher criticism come in. And they say, well, those are, David didn't write those verses. They don't belong in that psalm, right? Because they don't fit. They're really post-exilic. That means that they're after the exile, after the walls have been torn down. And so they, they, they're not by David. I disagree. I think these verses fit appropriately in David's call to repentance. And here's what I mean. Let me see if I can show you this. I think David's saying that repentance is bigger than just me and just, just about myself. My repentance matters beyond just my life. It matters in my life, my family, maybe, but it matters even beyond that. And David understood that, that the discipline of the king put the whole nation at jeopardy. I think that's what David's talking about here. That, that remember, as, as so goes the leader, so goes the nation. I mean, I think God says that in, in somewhere. But, but it's true, the leadership of the nation affects the nation, right? And so David, is, he had watched this under Saul. Saul's leadership had led Israel way down. And so his prayer here is, God, cleanse me so that the whole nation, the ramifications of my sin, I recognize they're on the whole nation. Please, God, don't let that, don't let that be so. He says, the walls of the city, a symbol of security, Maybe they're already under attack because as, as some sort of judgment against him. So he prays, Lord, in your loving greatness and goodness, forgive me. Build up the walls again. Heal the hurt that my sin has brought on your people. I, I think that's what David's alluding to. And so he's basically saying, God, my sin is bigger than, my repentance is bigger than just me. Lord, as I repent, please, you know, heal the nation. And he says, and if you do that, Lord, every song that's sung, every psalm that's read, every prayer that's uttered, they're going to be, they're going to be to you because you built up the nation once again. And, uh, and, you know, I think God answered David's prayer in some ways. I mean, in, in, in ways, I mean, he basically the nation would not fall because of David's sin. But David did not come away unscathed from his sin. We all know that, right? So here's the ramifications of David's sin. And I'm going to suggest that maybe his sin with Bathsheba, maybe in Uriah, maybe he prayed the wrong prayer there at the end. If indeed I'm right that he's praying, God, don't let my sin affect the nation, maybe he should have prayed, God, don't let my sin affect my family. Because here's what would happen. At the time of Bathsheba, Amnon and Absalom were near 10 years old. Timmy's going to be 10 this next week, right, Timmy? Timmy's going to be 10. So Amnon and Absalom were a little bit younger than I think they were nine and seven, maybe. But they're almost 10 years old. And one of those two men, one of those two sons of David, would rape his sister. The other son of David would then kill that son. Then that same son would then try to take over his father's kingdom. And, and I don't mean by this that God is moving those two boys like 
chess pawns, you know, I'm not suggesting that at all to punish David. What I am suggesting is that David's sin led to a culture in his family where his sons took what they wanted rather than walk in godly integrity. In other words, I think it's, it's obvious that they, they, none of them had a, uh, the kind of relationship God would have wanted for them uh, as far as a family is concerned. But, but obviously David's sons thought it would be better just to take what I want rather than to walk in integrity. So that's what Amnon did, and that's what Absalom would do. And God answered his prayer for his kingdom, but like I said, uh, his lack of integrity broke his family. So maybe David should have prayed something different. Men, God may forgive your sin. Ladies, God may restore you. He may do all that for But the consequences of our sin on our children can be catastrophic. Do you want to destroy your children? My two little grandsons are here this morning. They were the kind of cute ones up here at the front. But uh, my two grandsons are here today. I don't, I don't want my sin to destroy my grandsons. You should not want your sin to destroy your grandchildren. Today, I am calling on us to repent. I am. I'm, I'm calling on you in the room. And if you happen to listen to my live stream later on or you're on the live stream now, I'm calling on each of you to repent. What sin is heavy on your heart? What sin is God got his thumb on that's producing guilt and shame in your life that you've never dealt with? You know, today is today, and I am calling on you to take your sin to God, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for cleansing, to ask for restoration, to see this as not just an issue about yourself, and ask God to help you develop a broken and a contrite heart before him. Jesus has suffered for our forgiveness. I mean, I'm not asking you to do penance. I'm asking you to repent today. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.